Good morning. If you would please take your Bible and look to the book of Nehemiah. And we will be looking in chapter 11 this morning. I hate to admit to this, but uh, when I was in seminary and graduated back in 89, I have to admit that uh, three years I was there, I learned a lot, but I can honestly barely remember anything specifically that my professor said, which keeps me very humble myself with what I do these days. But I do remember a few things that were quotes from professors, and this is one of them that stuck out to me. And I've already mentioned this to you before, but uh, as a young pastor, I had started pastoring um, very, the, the first semester I was in seminary. And so I was eager just to soak in everything and uh, learn as much as I could to do the work that God had called me to do. And one professor said this that stuck with me, not everyone can do everything, but everyone can do something. I'm talking about the church, the people of God. Not everyone can do everything, but everyone can do something. And we know that believers are not gifted to do everything in the ministry of the church. However, we are all called and gifted to serve within the church in some capacity, the Apostle Paul speaks to this, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he teaches there that we are the body of Christ and that there are many various members joined together and working together in Christ to perform specific functions so that the whole might glorify him. And something else I remember from seminary, so this is about two of the three things I remember right here. But uh, I remember being taught what they called the Pareto Principle, which many call these days the 80-20 rule. And they taught us this concerning the church. And what is the Pareto Principle? Basically this, that 80% of the people, um, or rather 20% of the people, do 80% of the work. 20% of the people in the church typically do 80% of the work that goes on in the church. And I'll, I'll never forget that because it was shocking to me, even after I had grown up in church my entire life and been in, of course, a pastor's home and loved the church, and it really was my life, to think of it in that way. And I began to think about the church and, and look at it and think about what the scriptures teach about the church and I've come to this conclusion that the greatness of a church is not measured by the size of its budget, its facilities, its pastoral staff, its membership, or even its attendance. I believe that the greatness of a church is measured by the percentage of that congregation that has answered God's call to faithfully serve him in the body of Christ. And there are at least two challenges that arise in the church when regarding this truth. One is this, that every one of us need to realize that when we were called to Christ in salvation, 
It was not just a call to salvation, but it was a call to service. That when Christ calls his people to himself, it is not just a call to salvation, but a call to service. And we see this very much in the New Testament, don't, don't we? When Jesus speaks to disciples and others, he, he, he teaches them, come and follow me. He, he gives them work to be done. And we see this throughout the New Testament, that there is this understanding that the people of God, the church, have been called to Christ in salvation by grace through faith in him, but we have been called by grace through faith in him to serve him and to be actively involved in the work of ministry to which he has called us. Now, what this means is this, that if all of us have been called to ministry or called to serve, and the word ministry is really the word serve, it's that idea. If we've been all called to this, we need to understand, and, and certainly we, we do, I think, that is that a very small percentage of us in the body of Christ are called to full-time occupational ministry, where it is our full-time job. But the vast majority of us in the church have been called to serve nonetheless while we have jobs elsewhere where we're serving in some capacity and making a living in, in, in some place, wherever that place may be. Um, I, uh, I get the opportunity at Southern, of course, to meet people from all walks of life and and all different occupations. Uh, I had a student one time send me uh, a, a picture of himself in a cockpit with uh, a, a laptop computer with me lecturing. And he wrote me and he says, this is you lecturing at 30,000 feet. <laughs> what I looked at first was to make sure that there was someone next to him also flying the plane besides just him. And I did see feet of somebody else sitting next to him. So I don't think he was by himself, but he was a pilot in Malaysia. And uh, he was studying at Southern Seminary in our online classes and had that opportunity. But we've all been called, whether, whether or not it's, it's full-time occupational ministry or, or it's where God has called us to another occupation, and yet he has called us to serve in some capacity, to understand that we are part of the body of Christ and that we've been called to do that. A second challenge that can arise is that believers can desire or covet what uh, others have been called to do. And with that, think that what God has called us to do is not really all that important. And uh, Paul dealt with this issue also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We see Peter had a struggle with this when the Lord was telling him what he had in store for him. And he looked at John and he said, well, what about John? And he says, whatever I have for John, that's, that's his business and my business with him. But you need to be faithful to do what I've called you to do. And so it, it's difficult, and I, I think that it's appropriate to think of what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6.6 6 with this, and that is godliness with contentment is great gain. And one of the things that we must learn to do is be content with the gifts that God has given us, be content with the weaknesses that we have and the gifts that God hasn't given us, and be faithful to do what God has called us to do, 
trusting that God knows what he's doing, that God is wise in this. And at times we may be tempted to believe that God has called us to do something that's too difficult or, again, insignificant. But there's nothing insignificant in the ministry that God has called us to. And there's nothing too difficult for him. And if he has called us, while he often calls us to things that are too difficult for us, he has never called us to something that's too difficult for him to equip us and lead us to do what he's called us to do. And so it's important, I think, that we understand that. And it helps to remember the words of Christ when he said, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. That is, I think of people growing up in the church, people who work in the nursery. And that is a tremendous ministry to the body of Christ. To minister to those children, to minister to their parents, to know that their children are in a safe place and being taken care of very well as they can listen to the preaching and teaching of God's word, that they can be involved in the corporate worship that, that is that opportunity for them and to have that ministry that they have. And, and not all of us are gifted to, to work in the nursery, but we may be gifted in something else. Um, I'm one of those that truly is not gifted to work in the nursery. Um, I have um, my wife, she is like the baby whisperer, if there is such a thing. And she'll say to me, oh, this child needs this. I said, how do you know that? Oh, and it's like, you don't know that. And, and then she'll do it, and it's like, they're calm all of a sudden. Like, I don't know about this. But I remember one time, I don't even know what the situation was, but uh, she asked me if I would come in the nursery with her. And they were about uh, two-year-olds, two, three-year-olds, something like that. I really didn't want to, but, you know, I did it. I'd had enough experience in that that, I mean... Let's just face it, two-year-olds are thugs, right? I've already said this to you. They are. If, if 20-year-olds did what two-year-olds did, they'd all be in the state pen. I mean, it's true. And, and so these are not likable people. I mean, just to me. I don't want to hang out with them. They're scary, too. And, and so I, I just don't want to hang out with them. So anyhow, we went in there, and we had some people, some of those two-year-old people, um, that were kind of upset that their parents had left them. And I get it, their parents leaving them. I got it completely. But anyhow, um, they're there and uh, Anne's working with them and I'm there and we're trying to get them settled and all this. And like I said, I really didn't want to be there. So she finally got them all settled and they were all doing things. And um, I looked at them and I said, where is your mama? Where did she go? And then they all just started screaming and all this. And Anne looked at me and in our family, um, we call it the brow. Her eyebrows actually go up like, well, actually, they, go, they went way up like this uh, that, that time. And that's all she had to do, and it's like, you're out of here. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry about that. And then, then I left. Not every one of us is gifted to do everything. But I'm grateful that God has gifted her to do what she does. And those kids were grateful that she was gifted so that they didn't have to put up with me. And so it is a body ministry, and there is no place of ministry more exalted than another or lesser than another in God's eyes, because all are important to the work of the body of Christ. 
And this is important for us as we think about Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11 explains how the city of Jerusalem was repopulated. We've been going through this study, and we know that as, as we start, started this study, the, the real focus was on rebuilding that wall and getting everything situated for defending the city and getting rid of the reproach that the nations had, surrounding nations had, regarding the people of God and the city of God in Jerusalem. And we re read in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, when they completed the wall, it says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So why was that the situation? Well, one is this. Most of the exiles, people, the people of Judah who were taken into Babylonian captivity and dispersed from the land of Judah, they didn't return. In fact, we have an example of one of them and, and, and a number of them actually in the book of Esther, but Esther is one of those that did not return and Mordecai did not return. And so the vast majority of, of Hebrews or Jews, whatever you want to call them, that went into captivity, the vast majority never came back. And so there were very few of them, and they were small numbers that, that came back in comparison with what the population was that was taken into captivity. Another thing that we see here is that the city was in ruins. I mean, the Babylonians, when they attacked the third time, and they, they came to Jerusalem three times, they attacked twice, it appears, but on the second time, it was, or, or the third time they came in the second attack, they decided just to wipe it out completely. I mean, they, they, they knocked down all of its walls, burnt the city down, of course, destroyed the temple. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, you heard his name, I'm sure. He was the king of the Babylonians. He was just really put out with the people of Judah at that time because they had rebelled against him twice now. And um, I think he made up his mind, they're not going to be able to rebel against me again because I'm going to wipe them out. And he did. And the ones that survived, most of them he took into captivity. He, he left just a pittance of people there. He left the people that even he did not want there. Um, and so it was in a really bad state. And nothing had changed when they started to come back. And so that's what they came home to. And so it, it was a mess. And people found it easier to live outside the city than to live among a bunch of ruins. And so the city was not very populated. And another thing that we see here is that um, they, they ran into a lot of trouble when they came back. We, we read this in, in Nehemiah. If you read the book of Ezra, he talks even more about this. Um, but when the people of Judah started coming back, their enemies really gave them a lot of grief and made it very difficult for them to resettle. So for all these reasons, it, it, even though they got the wall done, the city was not repopulated, and this was a problem. So in Nehemiah chapter 11, what we see is an example of the people of God's willingness to live and serve wherever God wanted them to live and serve. What we see here is there are some people, a number of people who are living elsewhere in Judah who volunteered 
to move into the city to be there. There were others that were willing to not live in Jerusalem, but to live out in the countryside around Judah. And so this passage really speaks to those two things. And what we see here is there were priests and Levites, there were craftsmen and farmers, and all of them had places of service that God called them to do, or called them to, and they were essential to the overall purposes of the blessing of God's people. Those that lived outside of Jerusalem and the countryside were essential to those who lived within the city, and those who lived in the city were essential to those who were dispersed in the countryside. And so this is a structure, it's a simple structure in, in Nehemiah 11. We see in verses 1 through 24 the repopulation of Jerusalem, and then in verses 25 through 36 we see the repopulation of Judah and Benjamin, that is the countryside outside of Jerusalem. So let's look first of all at the repopulation of Jerusalem in verses 1 through 24. And one of the things we see here is the people had in mind to seek the welfare of Jerusalem because seeking the welfare of, of Jerusalem was seeking God's honor. Jerusalem was the city where God chose to make his presence manifest before his people and he, it is the place he chose for the temple to be built and the place he chose for his people to worship him. And so it truly was a holy city unto God and therefore holy to the people. And so they were seeking the welfare of it. What's interesting, we should notice the, the Persians were very happy for Jerusalem to be strong as well. The Persian Empire, I don't think, really cared very much one way or the other who the, the people of Judah worshipped or who their God was. But what they did care about is this, that they needed to have a city in that region that was governed by a person who was loyal to the Persian king and to have a city that was strong so that if there were any problems with enemies coming that direction, they would have a fortification to stand up against enemies to the Persian Empire. And this is exactly what they had in Nehemiah and the city of Jerusalem with the walls being built. So it was a practical thing for the people of Persia, and especially the king of Persia, to see all the things that Nehemiah was doing come to pass. Another thing the Persians would have been very happy about is having this city there because the city was the, the place of commerce. What people would do, those in the countryside, those are farmers and craftsmen and all this, they would come in to the city and they would set up their little um, places there to buy and sell. And, and they would have what I, I think of as ancient Near Eastern farmers markets, which um, you can see all over um, the Midwestern part of the United States in certain parts of the year. And this is exactly the way they did things year-round since their weather was always turning up some kind of, producing some kind of um, crop and, and some kind of work that, that could be done. 
And so these things were going on. And why is this important to the Persians? Well, buying and selling means what? Taxes. And who's collecting those taxes? The Persians were. And so why do I mention this? Just understand this, what the people of God were doing to honor God, God was also working in a way that showed the nations what he was doing and what was good for the people of God was good for Persia as well. And the Persian king understood that. You see, when the people of God truly do what the people of God should be doing, it's not just good for the people of God, but it is really good for everybody because it glorifies him and shows who the Lord God is among his people. And they were serving as a witness to these other nations and even to this Persian king, Artaxerxes. Well, what did the repopulation of Jerusalem involve? First of all, it involved administration. I heard this statement years ago when I was a young pastor, everything rises or falls with leadership. And it is noteworthy here as we read verses 1 and 2, what it says about the leaders. Notice verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And so what we see here, first thing, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. We see that the leaders were the ones who set the example. The city of God, this holy city, needs to be repopulated. And the leaders said, we're going to do that. We will repopulate. We will do the work that still needs to be done within the city to get it together so that it will no longer be a reproach to the nations. And we are going to set the example here. That is what leadership is. This is how it is. I've told you all I train dogs. One of the things people don't understand when your dog's going crazy, it's probably a reflection of you. Because, and what I mean by this, if the dog is upset by something, you're not going to calm it if you're upset as well. You calm the dog by being calm yourself so that they see, oh, I guess this isn't a bad situation after all. But when you're going crazy, the dog goes crazy. And the dog goes crazy, and then you go crazy. Well, the dog says, we, there must be something crazy going on here. And so this is what they do. And so what we see here is just an example of what leadership does. Leadership takes the lead. It's not real deep. They take the lead and do what is necessary. And before they're calling other people to come into the city and repopulate it, they're there. So when the people come, they will see the leaders. We're here. We're doing this. We're not asking you to do anything that we would not do ourselves. And this is exactly what they did. So there was administration here, the administration, the leadership. They understood this principle. You can't lead from behind. They led up front. We're already here. We need more people to come in here and to do this work with us and to make this city strong. And so this is what they did. 
Another thing we see here, and it reminds me, by the way, of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, he says, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. And the people could look at their leaders and say, you know, they're calling us, some of us, to move into the city, to leave our homes, to leave our way of life, and to move into this city, but they've already done so. They've already given the example. And so I will follow that kind of leadership, and that, that's what we see here. Also, it involved dedication. It's interesting here, in verse 1, it calls the city of Jerusalem the holy city. It was consecrated, it was devoted to God as the place God chose to manifest his presence among his people at the temple. So if Jerusalem was supposed to be devoted to Yahweh as the holy city, then how was it devoted to him? I already mentioned this. It was devoted, first of all, to the place that God told his people, this is where you will worship me. This is where the temple is to be built. This is where you will worship me. And so we see in verses 10 through 24, the list of priests and Levites serving in Jerusalem for what purpose? To lead in the worship in this holy city to their holy God. The place that was devoted as a place of worship. And so this is what they did. You see, the holy city required a holy people. As the Lord set it aside to be devoted to his worship, he set aside his people and consecrated them to be holy in their worship of him. And so this is what was going on here, and this was very important to understand that they were serving him in this capacity. It is interesting as well that one out of every 10 was brought into Jerusalem. So 90% of the people stayed out in the countryside, but 10% they drew lots, and 10% were those that were brought in to live in the city. We can't help but understand that this idea of a holy city consecrated and dedicated to God carries with that idea of the one-tenth of a tithe that was given, that it was dedicated to God. One out of every 10 was dedicated to the holy city. Certainly, it involves sacrifice, but it was a privilege, and it was a sacred calling that they had for those who were able to move into the city and were called to do so. It also involved organization. Everyone needed to know what their place of service was. They needed to know what their responsibilities were when they got there. They also needed to know what everyone else was doing. They needed to know how it all was working. And so um, they understood that they were there as a part of, of the revitalization of the city of Jerusalem. And there was organization that took place in this. And it was essential to the endeavor that they set out to do. There are lists here. These lists provide information and organization. And it's amazing how sometimes we will find some of our brothers and sisters in the church that don't understand the need for organization and almost act as if it's unspiritual, which that makes no sense whatsoever. 
And it's amazing to me that we can learn several things from Nehemiah. One is this, that there's nothing more spiritual than being organized and putting your mind to doing things in the best way possible for the glory of God and to give yourself to that. It's interesting as a kid, I heard some of these, well, they were old to me. Now they've gone to be with the Lord, but I, these old preachers that um, most were not like this, but I remember one in particular um, that uh, I often had him come and uh, be pulpit supply, and he was a retired pastor in a church, the church I grew up in, and um, he did not believe, though, in uh, sermon preparation, and um, you might ask, why did you ask him? Um, well, he was willing to come where others weren't, and there, there you go. And so uh, that's how that worked. So anyhow, he, he would come, and one, there was one Sunday, and this, um, you may be going through this hearing me preach, but uh, one Sunday I got back early. I thought I was going to be gone, and so I was in the service. And um, he was preaching. Uh, he was in the New Testament. He mentions Levi. Um, and when he mentions Levi, he stopped and he said, you know, that reminds me of someone I, I used to know as Levi. And he went on and just kept talking, and I kept waiting for how he was going to bring that in. It, it just reminded him of a guy he knew as Levi. That's all, that's what it, it had nothing to do with what he was preaching. And he just kept going and wherever, whatever came to his mind, that's, that's what came out um, as he did this. No, there, there's a place for planning. And I'll, I'll be honest with preachers, I often thought, even as a young man, it may be when you say that we don't need to plan in the church or plan to preach and study, I think it may be just laziness. Because it does take some work. And it's important for the church to understand that the work we're doing is more important than any work that's done on the face of this earth because it is the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it must be done well. You will give more planning to what you do in your home than you will in the church. And that, it just isn't right. And so there was organization as they went about this work. It involved cooperation. Notice here, it, it says they volunteered. No one was a draft dodger in this. Everyone was ready to go if the lot fell upon them. We will do what God has called us to do. We will go where God has called us to go, or we will stay where God has called us to stay. I always got kind of a kick out of this. I grew up in the church, and one of the songs they used to sing is, we'll go wherever he wants us to go. And the reason I got a kick out of that song as an adult, I've always been ready to go. What's always been more difficult for me is to stay. Because I can like, oh, I can go there, or I could go there, I could go there. And, and some, for some of us, it's not a matter of, are you willing to go? For some of us, are you willing to stay and do the work that God's called you to do right here? And it is being faithful to, because God calls some of us to go, and sometimes he calls us to stay. And it's being willing to go if he calls us to go, and being willing to stay 
if he calls us to stay. Understanding that our lives are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We belong to him. And so, Lord, by saying, Lord, it is saying you're my master, I will go where you want me to go or I will stay where you want me to stay. Whatever you want, you are my Lord. You are my master. And so they were willing to go. It was organized. Also, there was cooperation, and then there was consecration. Notice here, the word that's given here with holy is also closely associated within the Old Testament, which was the free will offering. And it was just an offering of of worship. It really wasn't so much about atonement. It was about just saying, we love you, Lord. We're worshiping you, and we want to praise you. But it's tied to that. And so there's an idea of consecration that we have offered ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Does that sound familiar to you? Because Paul says this, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 12, in verses 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, a consecrated sacrifice, a devoted sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is how they understood it. We are a free will offering, offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God to worship him, to praise him, and to be used of him, to serve him however he wills. This is the heart of the people of God. This is what it means to be a child of God, to have this kind of commitment to understand I belong to him. I think I shared this with you. This is, I've not lived faithfully to my Lord my entire life, even as we prayed this week. I know I haven't. And yet I can say this has never left me when I came to Christ, I was eight years old, and I recognized that Jesus died in my place as my substitute for my sins, that I was the one that deserved to die, but he died for me. And I invited him into my heart, but what I really did is this. In my mind, I'm thinking, Lord, you died for me, I'll live for you. And that has never left me. Even when I'm not always living as I should, I know that I have been bought with a price and that I belong to him. And that as long as he has me on this earth, I'm to live for him. And then we will, for eternity, live for him. And so this is what they understood. We are a sacrifice a free will offering that we are offering ourselves to God, we belong to him and we'll go wherever he leads us to go. It involved affirmation. The people affirmed those who had offered themselves to serve the Lord by relocating to Jerusalem, by pronouncing a blessing upon them. 
The way the wording is in the, the text, it appears that the people most likely kneeled down and the others corporately prayed a blessing over them. And this display of kneeling down is associated with the assumption that they were receiving this blessing and benediction placed upon them by the other people. And this is a practice that the people of God publicly did in appreciating, encouraging, affirming, blessing those who had voluntarily given themselves and their families for the sole purpose of serving the Lord in a specific capacity. I was thinking about this as I was looking over this passage again this week. It reminds me of a dear pastor. I called him Brother Dillard. Brother Dillard pastored a church in Dayton, Ohio. When I was in seminary, my first class I took, I graduated from college in December. I started seminary in January. Back then, we used to call them J-terms. And uh, in that J-term, I took um, the class, Worship in the Black Church. And Dr. McCall, who was an African-American, a black man that led that class, Dr. McCall gave us an assignment. He said, I want you, wherever you live, I want you to visit two black churches, and I want you to call them and let them know you're coming ahead of time so they can expect you, but I want you to go and visit those churches. And um, I'll never forget, uh, I was looking it up this week to see um, those churches, and uh, one of them I, I went to, they didn't start their, their service until one in the afternoon, um, which was different. Um, I grew up in a sort of same schedule as what you have here at this church, so that was different. What was also different is um, the service went for three hours, and that was really different. And um, also, he warned us, Dr. McCall said, don't be surprised if they just point you out and say, come up here, and we want to hear from you. And so you better be ready to have something to say. They did. Um, they called on me, and, and this was after the first hour. Now, I didn't know we were going to go th th three hours. But I'm like, oh, this is, I'm at the end, right? And so I'm just going to give a little, glad to be here. And I did, kind of glad to be here. It's been a joy, and, and it's been great, great past tense to worship with you and all that. And I went and sat down, and then we just got it revved back up and did it again. And, and it went for another two hours. It was a great time. I met Brother Dillard at the other church. And at that church, one thing that stuck out to me was Brother Dillard's praying. I'd hear him pray, and I'd think, man, I wish I could pray like that. God is listening to this man. I could tell he was listening to this man. Not that he doesn't listen to the rest, but he was listening to Brother Dillard. Everyone was listening to Brother Dillard. So much so that when uh, I was uh, to be ordained, they asked me, who do you want to give the prayer over you at your ordination. I said, I want Brother Dillard, if he'll come, to come and, and pray over me at my, at my ordination. Brother Dillard came, and he prayed. And the blessing that it was to me to hear him pray was something that has stuck with me as well. 
it matters when we pray for one another. It's important that we pray for one another, and especially those who are going off to serve in a way or coming in to serve in a way to bless them and pray for them as what was going on here. Some of the people were coming into Jerusalem who had lived outside. Others were were going to be out in the countryside, and they prayed over these people and asked God's blessing, and they affirmed them. And so this is what it involved to repopulate Jerusalem. Um, What what else do we see here? Who was involved? Well, look at verse 3. Now, these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, each lived on its own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of of Solomon's servants, some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. So who was doing this? Well, we see here in verses 3 through 9, there were lay families, just, just people from all over who came in. And it's interesting how valiant they were to leave their homes, to leave the places they had settled, many of them for a number of years at this point, to move from their homes to come into Jerusalem to do what needed to be done for the people of God. Also, we see in verses 10 through 14 here in chapter 11, the priests, the priests were involved in this. It is interesting. Some of them were called valiant warriors. I'll just say this. It's nice to see that uh, these priests um, did not go by uh, what has become stereotypical of a lot of ministers. But um, these were priests who did the work of the Lord. And if you were going to mess with the things of the Lord, they were ready to defend it and to do what needed to be done in that. And so... This is what, who else was called? The Levites, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants in verses 15 through 24. Um, we see this, and, and we look in verses 22 and 23. The, um, they, they consisted of priests with their duties to the temple, gatekeepers um, needed for the security of the city, the Levites who were responsible for helping. What's interesting as well is that some of these Levites had the job, it says they were in charge of the outside work of the house of God. They were in charge of working outside and taking care of just maintenance and those kinds of things. And that's important. It it was a part of this that, yeah, we think of Levites and we think about them helping the priests and doing the sacrifices, but some of them were working just on the buildings to make sure that they were taken care of. And this is, this is important. One of the things that serving the Lord involves is being a good steward of the things that are dedicated to him. Being a good steward of those things and wanting to do our best toward them. It's interesting. Some of us, I think, we can say, you know, the Lord, the Lord knows my heart. I don't need to do all these outward displays of things because the Lord knows my heart, and he does. But the rest of us don't. People outside of the church don't. And so it'd be kind of like, I just saw this yesterday. It caught my attention. Um, There's a commercial. um, 
um, during this ball game where Tennessee was just whipping on some team. I don't remember what team it was. But anyhow, in the middle of that commercial, um, they were, they, it was a jewelry store wanting to get people to buy engagement rings. And the whole commercial was, this is an expression of love, and, and this is uh, showing one, your love for, for um, your um, future wife and, and this sort of thing. And it, it ended up, it, it went to a lady, and she said, this just makes me feel wrapped up in love. Well, there you go. The thing is, though, we understand that. We do get an engagement ring to start it out. Why? Because it is an expression of our love. And then as time goes, hopefully in that marriage, there's much more giving and a desire for good things for our spouse just because we love them. And it's a part of loving someone is to want to do nice things for them and to express that to them. And you can't go in the Old Testament and not see where people gave because they wanted to express their love and devotion to God. If you want a good picture of that, just go to the last part of Exodus and check out all that was involved in the tabernacle and building a tent for God and how much was given to that. And this goes back to my childhood. I told you last week, I told my dad that I I wasn't um, a uh, janitor. He obviously didn't get that because another time when I was going to uh, shut down some lights after a service, um, he sent me to the preschool area, and he said, I want you to make sure all the lights are off in all the rooms. So I went down there. I remember just peeking my head into one of the areas there, and I'm about 13 years old, and I, I look in, and I see a rug in there that I had never seen before. And it caught my attention. Now, listen, if something like a rug catches my attention, there's something wrong. And there was something wrong. Because I thought to myself, who put that there? That's the nastiest thing I've ever seen. And that's actually what I did when I went back to my dad. I said, everything's okay, but there's something. Somebody put this big rug in, in the preschool area. It just looks nasty. And this is what he said. 13 years old, I've never forgotten this. He said, well, there's a couple in the church. They're redoing their house, and they're putting in all-new carpet, and so they didn't want it anymore, so they put it down there. And even as a 13, I thought, there's something wrong with that. If you would not have it in your house, why would you put it in the Lord's church building? At least that's dedicated. It's not the temple. I understand that, but it is dedicated to the things of God. And I've also heard people say this, you need to give to God what you would give to yourself. Now, that doesn't work with me. I'm okay with a little mediocrity in my life. It, I, 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 no, he deserves best. He deserves our very best. Now, this may seem weird to you. That means going to bed at night, early on a Saturday night enough to where I'm going to get a rest so that when I come in to worship, I'm ready to worship instead of staying up all night so I'm wiped out and then I'm not worth anything as I come to worship and hear the word of God taught to me and to sing and all those things. It's just thinking about these things, saying everything we do is to honor him. 
We live for him. And we want him to have our best. Doesn't mean that our best is the best of everybody. No, it's the best that we have to give, you see. And that's, that's what he's looking for. That's what he wants from us. Well, the last part, and we're at the end, and I knew we would be here, and I'm not going to have us read this, because verses 25 through 36, we see the repopulation of Judah and Benjamin. Chuck Swindoll refers to these people as the willing unknowns, the lesser lights, the forgotten heroes, the unknowns, the nobodies who paved the way for the somebodies. We have a whole list of people whose names are not mentioned here, but who were willing to do what God called them to do. These are the true heroes. These are the 90% that said, we'll go out into the countryside. We're not going to have our name on any list. No one's going to remember us in the list that are made. But I'll tell you who does remember them. The Lord God remembers them. And they honored God by being willing to be the unknowns that were faithful to serve him. And what a blessing that is. Not everyone can do everything, but everyone is called to do something. What can we take away from this passage one is this, God remembers the joyful obedience of his people. We see names of people, we see just people without names mentioned. But God takes joy in this, and he is blessed by it. Also, we should be grateful for these people. We should be grateful for people who have come before us who have done work that we had no part of. I didn't understand this as a young man. I, I understood it when I went to my last church. I remember I walked into that auditorium and I thought they had been through some rough times. They didn't have many people there. And I looked at that auditorium. It was very nice. And I remember thinking, God, I don't know who, the, who those people were who have been here all these years before I have stepped foot in this place. But thank you. Thank you for what they've done because we've got a facility, we've got some things here that we won't have to, that won't be challenges for us. We'll, we have other challenges, but thank you that you've given this to us. And it's understanding that people, the, the work of God didn't start when T.J. Betts was born. And it's going to go on when he takes me. And it's not about us. And we should, we should be grateful for others, the work that they've done and are doing. And it should remind us that other people are important to God. Other people are important to God. And the, your pastor, his job, he's going to have, he has many things, responsibilities, but his main thing, one of his main things, will just be to oversee what everybody else is doing. And it, it, it's important for the church to understand that whatever you're involved in 
it's not the only thing that's going on around here. But that it's a body ministry. There are people in the nursery. There are people who lead in music. There are people with women's Bible studies and, and men's uh, activities and, and studies. And there are youth activities. And, and the list goes on and on. And no one is more important than the other. But it is to have an appreciation for everybody in the body of Christ. And to realize that, yeah, I can't do very well in that nursery, but I'm glad I know someone who does a great job in there. And by the way, not to embarrass her, she does not want to talk in front of anybody ever in her life. Um, because that's just not how she's made up. And that's fine, because I didn't marry her for her or, um, oratory um, abilities, okay? And so it's a body ministry. And so we need to understand that. What are ways you can encourage others to serve Christ more faithfully? Are you volunteering to serve Christ faithfully in his church? How does it benefit the cause of Christ when believers are unconcerned about getting credit for what they do? And finally, what kind of legacy of commitment to Christ and his church do you desire to leave for those who come after you? What are you presently doing to fulfill that hope? Hopefully we learn from Nehemiah and these people to carry on the work that God has called us to do here and now at Fisherville Baptist Church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us not only unto salvation, and that is, that is a wonderful thing beyond words to, to be able to express our gratitude for, but also, Lord, that you have called us not only to salvation, but unto service, to serve you. You have privileged us as sons and daughters to be about your work. And Father, I pray that we would be faithful to that, whatever it is, that we would be joyful in that, whatever it is, and that we would serve in the place wherever it is you've called us to serve you, to the glory of our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.